Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders, hosted by Cheryl Toth and Mike Sakopoulos, and produced by the American Association for Physician Leadership. These have been difficult times for our country. The medical profession has been particularly hard hit during the pandemic. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Kent Corso. Tremendous benefits can be gained by the integration of behavioral health into primary care. Dr. Corso will discuss alarming new statistics on nurse and physician suicides. We will cover addressing burnout and other mental health issues from the physician leader's perspective. This is an important topic, so let's begin. My guest today on Sound Practice is Kent Corso, a licensed clinical psychologist and board-certified behavioral analyst. Dr. Corso holds an adjunct assistant professor position in the Department of Family Medicine at the Uniform Service University of Health Sciences, and holds a consulting position for the Division of Recovery and Resilience Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Health at Ohio State University's Wexler Medical Center. Dr. Corso has published 50 peer-reviewed papers, and he is the author of Integrating Behavioral Health into the Medical Home, a Rapid Implementation Guide, published by AAPL. Dr. Corso, thank you for joining us on Sound Practice. Thanks for having me, Mike. It's great to be here. So how many, in, in, in rough numbers, how many of our fellow Americans have mental health issues, and has that fluctuated with the current pandemic that we find ourselves in? So, Mike, a a little over a quarter of folks in America would meet criteria for any mental health disorder at any given time, and uh, that doesn't include those who are what we'd say prodromal or sub-threshold. So perhaps they meet a handful of criteria, but they don't fully meet criteria for, let's say, depression, anxiety, or any other sort of disorder like that. We are seeing an increase since the pandemic. We've seen an increase in both anxiety and depression. We've also seen increased relapse in both substance dependence, substance abuse, but also alcohol abuse, alcohol dependence. Some of the other indicators we are seeing is increased calls to crisis hotlines, other sorts of distress hotlines, and hotlines that function to serve those who are relapsing from substance and alcohol use. As as you know, our audience uh, for this uh, podcast is primarily physician leaders and healthcare executives. Uh, So I'll ask the the same question, but this time if you could focus on the healthcare uh, profession as far as degree of, of mental health issues. What's interesting, Mike, is that over the last 10 to 15 years, as our healthcare system continues to rapidly evolve, we've got more demands on these systems in the way of accountability, reporting, data analytics, obviously electronic health records and medical records, collaboration, coordination, all of those things. And in the pandemic, there's been a demand for technology. So people being agile enough, practices, hospital systems being agile enough to shift gears, provide telehealth, do things in a more virtual environment. And what we have seen is uh, a pattern of some of the smaller clinics and practices, private practices shutting down uh, or consolidating. So definitely from, the, from a business side and, and viability, 
one's own career, we've, we've seen uh, some problems. On the other hand, we also know that uh, if a practice shuts down, those patients are going somewhere. And so then there are other systems that have sort of been overrun and have had an influx of patients. So interesting, depending on, I suppose, where you are, how big you are, and what, what part of the country you are, you've experienced something different. I will say that I do quite a bit of work in the uh, medical systems in Canada, and they've taken a different tact to all of this. They really went virtual, uh, almost uh, especially in the large cities. And so here in the States, I haven't seen as many people go virtual. And I think that's probably just to stay alive, to be honest, since we don't have as much of the federal funding that just comes out of pocket per patient per month in the States. Interesting. And do you believe that there's any uh, difference in the quality of care between in-person and virtual for these type of services? So the, the jury's out on that, to be honest. The, the research is, is uh, a bit mixed. There, there are quite a, bit, uh, quite a few research studies showing that even things like telederm are, are very viable, that quality is not compromised. Uh, it goes back to technology. So for some of the specialties, it depends on the technical equipment that the patient has access to that then, of course, feeds data back to the physician group or the, the, the medical group where they can look at the, the data that, that has been given. Um, and then uh, with regard to behavioral health specifically, uh, that is another area where the research is, is still not clear as to whether it is equal in quality. What I can say is there has been a reduction in sort of no-shows within the behavioral health field as we've moved to telebehavioral health during the pandemic. So many more people are making their appointments. Of course, there's also an influx of people who maybe were not in treatment before. Uh, so unclear whether that speaks more to the benefits of telehealth or how desperate people are getting with regard to needing help but uh, definitely seeing some, some positive things come out of the behavioral health, telehealth side. Interesting. You're the author of Integrating Behavioral Health into the Medical Home. Can you tell our audience what are some of the benefits to integrating behavioral health? Uh, do you have about four hours for that question, Mike? <laughs> I like to ask the broad questions you uh, drill down from there, Doctor. <laughs> Uh, so so um, let me sort of start at a, at a higher level. So the, the top 10 causes of death 100 years ago in America uh, were infectious diseases. And these days they're chronic conditions. That is to say they're conditions for which lifestyle, behavior, choices, uh, values, culture, uh, sort of psychosocial factors, they really drive those top 10 causes of death. In fact, when we look at all of the variables driving the top 10 causes of death, 40% is accounted for by health behaviors, uh, about 15% um, are accounted for by those social determinants of health we hear about that are so important. And so when you think about it, uh, a lot of what is killing Americans uh, is not necessarily best addressed with meds. Uh, it's certainly not a chemical imbalance or some sort of other organic issue. Um, Certainly genetics play a role, certainly biology, physiology plays a role, but, but it's the decisions we make day to day, what we put in our bodies, do we wear seatbelts, do, uh, uh, um, do we have safe sex, right, do we wash our hands, right, so all sorts of things, do we smoke, do we drink, do we exercise, uh, when we do have a condition, how do we care for ourselves, do we engage in good self care practices, are we good at adhering to the medical plan laid out by the physicians, 
or or not right so so when we when when many people hear behavioral health integration they think okay that means hiring a garden variety mental health provider a garden variety therapist and just plugging them into primary care and that's not at all what it means in fact if we reverse the order of the words it's really about healthy behavior versus behavioral health so um, that means any way in which uh, thoughts, behaviors, actions, decisions impact health or mental health. And so in that sense, that's where the benefits lie. They lie in one's ability to use that service uh, seamlessly within, let's say, the medical home and uh, help patients access it right there, which decreases stigma for mental health problems, but also gives the physicians an additional set of tools Certainly, they can do procedures and write scripts, or these days they're really typing scripts, right, because they're electronic. Um, but then it gives them access to a whole host of psychosocial interventions and assessments that they can sort of hand off to the behavioral health person who functions as sort of a physician extender. And so in that way, it does circle back to the tenets of the medical home model. And what we know about the benefits of integrating behavioral health is it really helps us reach that quadruple aim. So lower cost for healthcare, uh, better quality, better patient experience, and decreases sort of physician burnout or staff attrition. Very interesting. It would seem that it would also help lead to the understanding of, of root causes of conditions instead of just the labeling and diagnosing of them. Is that uh, Absolutely. So, so 1977, a physician by the name of George Engel published a very important paper talking about biopsychosocial medicine. So not just looking at one's biology he, in, in his article, it's a, it's a pretty sort of a landmark article. He talks about the diabetic whose, whose culture drives his or her diet and how we, as physicians, we have to consider culture and other sorts of psychosocial variables. And that was 1977, Mike. Um, that was, uh, let's say, 44 years ago. And we've still got uh, some, some doctors who struggle to integrate the psychosocial part to the bio. And it's, uh, oftentimes it's not for lack of wanting or trying. It's a time factor. It's that there are increased demands, like we talked about before, with regard to documentation, reporting, et cetera, et cetera. And then at the end of the day, when you're 20 patients deep in a primary care clinic or 30 patients deep, old habits die hard. And it's just survival. You do what you can. So without a doubt, having uh, a well-trained behavioral health person in your clinic, and, and to be honest, it's not just primary care. We have behavioral health integrated into sleep medicine clinics, pain clinics, endocrinology clinics, cardiology clinics, what have you. They can be integrated at the specialty level as well. By far, the benefits uh, are there for, for sort of those psychosocial factors. Let's look at it. A success story because I think we all need some some happy happy news, um, and you have some in your in your book. Can you give us some examples of things that worked well for health systems? Absolutely. So I'll just kind of name a few systems that that jump out at us as some of the leaders in this space. Uh, the state of Colorado, in general, has done incredible things both 
at the legislative level to help really grease the skids for some of the hospital systems, but then down into the hospitals and clinics. They've even done a study showing that if you salary behavioral health providers, they're much more productive um, and they have better job satisfaction. And so you have better staff retention. Now, I don't know if physician leaders can appreciate the value of those kinds of research findings, consider that uh, mental health parity came online in 2008, and yet we still have a limited number of appointments in some uh, third-party payer systems. We still have mental health uh, functioning as a silo or as sort of the separate system. So as we continue to try to bring mental health mainstream, one of the important things is not to tax the historical disconnect, not to, to put that and, and have it as sort of a tax to the mental health provider where they have to do all their own billing, all their own uh, scheduling. So there's got to be some sharing of resources within the medical clinic that enables that behavioral health provider, mental health provider to really do what they do well. So that's one uh, helpful study came out about four years ago. Intermountain, and that's in Utah, um, 22 hospitals uh, and growing. Um, they've gotten some great results. 53% uh, of diabetic patients with depression uh, gained better control of their diabetes. Um, and one thing to point out is that the cost of treating a depressed patient with diabetes is about $896 more per patient per year because the depression decreases their motivation. So they're not as good at, let's say, adhering to the, the plan the physician has laid out for them. So comorbidities are one ways that systems have really tried to target patients in a way to improve outcomes and costs. So certainly that's, that's one of the benefits. Um, we also know that uh, uniquely, Mike, when a patient goes to, let's say, cardiology, pulmonology, endocrinology, orthopedics, the specialist treats the patient based on the severity level of the chief complaint, right? Mm -hmm. But in behavioral health, whether my pet bird died or whether my uh, father just got murdered uh, on the same day I got COVID, on the same day my sister was sexually assaulted, on the same day my brother got cancer, we're getting the same exact initial assessment which doesn't really make any sense. It doesn't really fit with the rest of the medical system. It's not to say that a pet bird isn't important and that someone might not be suffering because of the loss of their pet, but it is to say that no matter what walks through one's door in specialty mental health, it's sort of, the, we give them the big guns. And so what that means is we're often over-treating, over-assessing. And so this is one benefit to integrating behavioral health into primary care is we're delivering the right level of care at the right time. And so, uh, for example, Cherokee Health System, um, which is in Tennessee, has uh, withstanding up a very robust, high fidelity integrated behavioral health program, they had a 34% decrease in outpatient psychotherapy visits. So one in three patients who would have previously needed that high level of care where they'll get the big guns were actually able to be treated in one to four 30-minute visits in the primary care domain. So it, it costs less, it saves money, and of course the outcomes are equivalent. So, so those are some of the um, sort of quick and dirty examples. One other uh, system I'd point to is the Department of Defense. Uh, the VA, Department of Veterans Affairs, and Department of Defense Medical Systems are probably the largest systems in our country that have uh, enterprise-wide integrated behavioral health. 
those programs started about 15 to 20 years ago. They were piloted about 20 years ago, and they've been in the last 10 to 15 years rolled out enterprise wide. And so uh, what we know is that for every 10 patients that see a behavioral health person in primary care, only one will be will need to be referred to specialty mental health. So consider that we've never really had stepped care for behavioral health. Physicians generally uh, at a high level approach said, is this physical or mental, this, this condition that's coming my way? And if it's mental, it goes to psychiatry, social work, psychology, whoever the, the mental health agency is nearby. So this right size is what should have been happening all along. Just like with an endocrine problem, an ortho problem, a derm problem, the primary care physicians are able to do something at that level um, before escalating to a specialist. So this puts in place a primary level of stepped care that, um, again, nine out of 10 will stay there and, and be treated there effectively. Uh, so so it, it is definitely a money saver. It's definitely a quality enhancer. And so for, for uh, hospital systems and even ACOs who have been very slow on the uptake, I'll, I'll sort of point that out. The ACOs have been very slow on uptake of integrated behavioral health. Uh, they're actually the ideal candidate to be doing this because when you're um, working uh, system-wide and looking to standardize quality across multiple clinics or systems, this is the ideal way to do it uh, in a way that helps meet the quadruple aim. Also sounds like it, it allows more availability for those that, that truly do need the big guns, right? By that's a great point. That's a great point. So we know that if I'm a primary care provider, 30 to 50% of the patients I refer to a specialty mental health provider will never make their first appointment. And so um, oftentimes people talk about, well, there's a supply and demand issue. There are so many patients in need, but not enough mental health providers to serve them. Well, that's because there's never been stepped care. It's as if primary care, a, a, a fair analogy is if primary care never touched the cardiac system that anyone who came into uh, primary care with anything from uh, some upper, upper GI distress that could be cardiac or, or literally a heart attack got sent straight to cardiology. Could you imagine how overrun the field of cardiology would be? Well, well that's exactly what's happened in the mental health field. And so, yes, this does sort of uh, treat things at the lowest level and only elevate it when it needs to be. Some data that I collected a few years ago uh, within the military medical system showed that when your behavioral health service in primary care was being used at about half of, of an FTE, about half of what you're capable of doing, it increased access in specialty mental health by about 20%. Now, I don't think it's a linear relationship. I don't think if they're being used, actually that wasn't half, I'm sorry, it was being used to, to a third of its capacity. So I don't think it's linear where if they were seeing 100% of capacity, we'd see a 60% increase in access to, to in specialty mental health. I don't think it's linear, but certainly it would be north of 20%. And that, that matters when we have wait lists. Yeah, when we have wait lists in some places that are uh, one to two months long uh, to, to open up 20, 30% access, that's substantial. I have to... I tried to focus on some positive things, but now I have to ask you about a study that I, I recently uh, read. In fact, I think it came out earlier uh, this this week, a study on suicide risks for nurses and physicians. And the study revealed that the risk of suicide among nurses uh, was twice that of the general population. 
and, and even higher than among physicians, which is certainly a population known to be at, at high risk. You've studied this topic, Dr. Corso. Are you surprised by, by this? I'm not surprised by it. Uh, and especially uh, the study uh, did not, um, the, the study used data from 2007 to 2018, but even if we looked just in the last 18 months with COVID, I think we would we would see a similarly shocking result. So it's not surprising. Uh, the doctors and nurses are are notorious for giving sometimes more than they have, right? So they're at high risk for burnout. They um, often don't engage in positive self-care. Uh, so whether the um, operational demands or, or occupational demands are high or not, they're constantly trying to give more, right? Even when maybe the demand isn't there. And, and for better or for worse, I'll be honest, doctors and nurses don't make great patients, right? Uh, we're, we're kind of experts in that area and we try to treat ourselves um, or we push back when someone tries to treat us. We're great for caring for others, but not great caring for ourselves. So, um, so yeah, pretty concerning though. It, it is, and since we have an audience of, of healthcare leaders and given this increased risk of, of suicide in the healthcare profession, can you make any recommendations to our audience, things that could, they could do in their day-to-day -day lives that would make a difference? There are a handful of things that I would encourage healthcare leaders to do, physician leaders. One is that leadership is highly underestimated. I think it's highly underappreciated in the corporate environment, particularly corporate healthcare. Uh, as a military veteran, uh, I've lived this firsthand. Good leaders produce good followers, bad leaders produce bad followers. And so how leaders lead by example, so the, the habits they engage in, how they uh, transparently convey their lifestyle, the choices they make, that absolutely has an effect downhill and downstream uh, to those who are subordinate to the leader. Likewise, when we look at HR policies, when we look at benefits, when we look at ways to take care of our people, We've got to make the right decision, not just the one that might be most fiscally responsible from the organization's perspective. In the healthcare field, we talk a lot about patient-centered care. And when we are leading healthcare organizations, we have to look at employee-centered policies, not only business-centered policies. And there are places where we can get a win-win, where we're not going to necessarily hemorrhage money in order to take good care of our people. So I think from that uh, leadership, management, HR perspective, there's always more we can do. Uh, and especially if we're proactive and we're thinking ahead, I will say there are some organizations I've worked with where they uh, not only permit administrative time to their doctors and nurses, but they permit what's called wellness time, uh, or exercise time, maybe three hours during a week, however they want to divide it up. And they encourage people to use that for, for wellness, whether it's to take an extended lunch, whether it's to go to a fitness center. Um, I've been in some facilities recently where they've put fitness centers inside their hospital within their clinics, right? Just to make it more accessible. We know the more accessible it is, the more likely the doctors and nurses are to use it. And then lastly, Mike, uh, integrating behavioral health, it's, it sounds too good to be true, but it really does help with uh, reducing physician burnout. It helps with uh, reducing the burden. When you consider that there's a, a licensed independent practitioner there as the integrated behavioral health provider, 
And their job is to do things for the physician to make the physician's life easier. That could be anything from uh, doing the kind of education that nurses sometimes do. It could be doing certain interventions or assessments that the physicians aren't able to do. A, a good example is insomnia. Uh, the first line treatment for insomnia, uh, according to the American Academy of Pediatrics and Sleep Medicine, is not a medicine. And yet, if we go into any hospital or clinic, we see that 90% of what doctors are doing for insomnia is prescribing a hypnotic. Uh, the first line treatment is behavioral sleep medicine, CBTI, cognitive behavioral therapy. And that's, that takes a load off the doctor's shoulders, both in terms of quality, uh, certainly it lowers pharmaceutical costs, but also if the doctor says, oh, this is insomnia and there's no organic cause, I've ended the appointment after five minutes and I regain whatever time you know, would have taken me to treat that patient. I'll hand them over to the behavioral health and I'll move on to my next patient or I'll go finish some notes or, or what have you. So a lot of times when we're using these team-based methods of delivering care, it just makes the physician's lives easier. Well, that is a happy note to end on, Dr. Corso. Thank you very much. I wish we did have the four hours that you raised earlier to, to uh, spend more time discussing this because there are tremendous benefits to behavioral health. So thank you for sharing today on Sound Practice, and I greatly appreciate your time. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, Mike. It was a lot of fun. Sadly, Dr. Corso is correct. When it comes to behavioral and mental health problems, healthcare providers are poor patients. It is my hope that this episode of Sound Practice focuses needed attention on the importance of integrating behavioral health into primary care. With the expanding need for both mental and behavioral health services in both the healthcare profession and the general public, Kent Corso's voice needs to be heard. Many thanks to Dr. Kent Corso for his time and insights. Thanks also to the American Association for Physician Leadership. Finally, if you are dealing with a mental health issue, Please seek help. Take care of yourself and your colleagues. You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts so you can automatically receive our episodes. And please rate us and comment on the podcast in iTunes and Google Play. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at American Association for Physician Leadership. We are the world's premier organization for all aspects of physician leadership in every sector of healthcare. Learn more at physicianleaders.org. That man Robin.